1999, former Conservative MP and Cabinet Minister Jonathan Aitken was convicted of perjury at the Old Bailey in an infamous and widely reported case. His political career lie in ruins and he received an 18-month prison sentence, starting at the high-security Belmarsh. Jonathan's story is quite unique and at the time he was one of the most vilified personalities of his generation. As journalist, he'd spent some seven years on Fleet Street and as an author, he'd written some 17 books, including acclaimed biographies on Nixon and Thatcher. These days, he is a London-based priest, serving as prison chaplain in HMP Pentonville in East London and assistant minister at St Matthew's Westminster Church. Our fascinating conversation took place in his London home. Listen in as we chat over the past, present and future of a life fully lived. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. Before we meet this week's wonderful guest, here's a little something for you. If you're a fan of the show and would like to get involved and support us at Your London Legacy and help us keep producing amazing content just for you, you can get involved over on our Patreon page. We take every penny and we'll reinvest it back into the show. If you want to get involved and get hold of some really cool benefits or have us create your very own London Legacy episode or maybe meet up with us and other London Legacy lovers in London, you can do that too over at www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's get on with the show. Well, today I'm delighted to have on the podcast uh, go now by go by the name of the Reverend Jonathan Aitken. Uh, so it's a pleasure to have you on your London Legacy, Jonathan. Thank you very much. No, it's very nice of you to uh, to welcome us into your home here in Central London. Tell us a little bit about where we are first of all in in London. I mean, the home because I know well, your, your home prior to this was a very famous property. Well, we're in the Royal Borough of Kensington, but slightly at the unfashionable end. Uh, we're at the Earl's Court end. Uh-huh. I live in a nice flat about uh, three or four hundred yards from Earl's Court tube station. And the Earl's Court Road, which is very close, might be said to be rather like the slogan of the old news of the world, all human life is here, because it's a bustling, busy street. And the commercial traffic, the human movement is full of color and drama often. Uh, it's quite a high crime rate area, uh, but it's also a um, vibrant area, full of life, and I enjoy living here very much. What about the home you lived in previously? Um, because I think that you had some famous connections with Winston Churchill, if I'm not mistaken. Well, my previous main home was number eight, Lord North Street. And Lord North Street is a stone's throw, almost literally, from uh, the Palace of Westminster and the House of Commons. And the actual reason I bought it was because it was in somewhere called the Division Bell area. Now, this is a label which now means almost nothing in the days of modern electronics and uh, mm. iPhones and so on. But during the uh, 25 years when I was an MP, technology was much, much slower. And when a vote was called in the House of Commons, uh, it was called, and still is, a division. The speaker shouts, division, and everybody has to get to the chamber of the House of Commons and move into the division lobbies to vote. If you were very lucky, you could manage to live in a property so close to the House of Commons that you could get from your home. I've even once or twice had done it when I was in the bath, but certainly when you were just sitting down in this ground floor. And within uh, less than five minutes, you could be from your home 
inside the Houses of Parliament and then inside the division, because there was always eight minutes from the moment when the Speaker called division, and uh, the doors then closed, and you couldn't get in. So how were you actually notified of of the division? By a a bell, uh, which was not a quiet affair. It was a loud clang, ding-dong, ding-dong, ding-dong bell, which ran in every room of the Palace of Westminster, but also on the, those old-fashioned electronic circuits within homes or buildings within five minutes' walk of the house. So it had to be fitted, pre-fitted it had to your home. It was quite an expensive yeah. operation. But also, it meant a lot, for example, to my life, because you didn't know when divisions were going to be called. But if you could be at home, take something as pleasant as uh, children's bath times mm. or reading a bedtime story... I could be um, uh, sitting there doing that um, and not not a prisoner of the Palace of Westminster, not having to be, as everyone else very nearly had to be, on the premises. Because of the thing called the Division Bell area, I was allowed to be uh, five minutes away mm-hmm. and I could then close the children's storybook. And how would you know the, the importance of the vote, for example, whether it's a three-line whip and you had to attend or... Well, that was a, another non-technical thing, you just have a piece of paper which said uh, there will be votes this evening between uh, five o'clock in the evening and until late. And then you might say your attendance is requested with one line underneath, which means you simply don't need to bother to turn up unless you're participating in the debate because there are going to be no votes. Or it would say your attendance is essential unless you have registered a firm pair, which is an arrangement you can make with a member of the opposite side of the House of Commons, and you both agree to pair or not to vote. But all the big votes, and some crucial votes, I mean, this House has no confidence in Her Majesty's government, is the most dramatic of all, but could be this House approves the budget. And it has underneath the the, uh, announcement of the subject and the timing of the vote or approximate timing of the vote has three thick black lines. Mm. And a three-line whip means you just have to be there and have to vote. And you're in bad trouble if you don't. And indeed, I've seen in my time votes lost by one or two votes. Sure. Um, And you would have that in advance of the bell going in your your home. You'd know what votes were. Sometimes it would say there will be a vote at 10 o'clock quite common but often it would say there will be votes from 3 30 p.m onwards until an unknown hour which could mean four o'clock in the morning yeah. next day so, you're on standby. So, so it was a big uh, plus to be able to have a house in the division bell do you remember what the most important vote is that you were called to on like a last minute notice well the most important vote i can ever remember was in um i think march 1979 when Margaret Thatcher, as leader of the opposition and the conservative opposition, challenged the Labour government led by Jim Callaghan on a motion of no confidence. And on a very dramatic vote, by one vote, Callaghan's government was defeated and Margaret Thatcher and the opposition won. The opposition was supported by a pretty rackety collection of uh, people like United Ulster Unionists or Plaid Cymru or Scottish Nationalists, very unusual to have that degree of unity, but there was at that particular moment, and that meant the Callaghan government fell, and there had to be a general election. 
And that was extremely close. Um, and no one knew what was going to happen until the absolute final moment when the vote was called. Mm. Do you miss that cut and thrust of uh, being called in at the last minute to make these crucial votes? Well, there's an element of, you know, uh, being fascinated by what's going on in the House of Commons and saying, gosh, I wish I was there for that vote or that debate. But on the whole, not. I've got a very happy life yeah. outside the House of Commons. Yeah. Politics isn't quite as interesting and as fun as it used to be as well. <laughs> well, it depends if you're a fan of uh, Brexit and what's been going on over the last three years or so. I mean, you might find that quite tedious, as a lot of the public, I think, have. Well, it's been a terrible mess, I think, Brexit. Mm. And one of the reasons it's been a me mess is that the parliamentary system simply couldn't cope with it and got into more and more chaos as people thought they could just vote against their party because they felt so strongly. And so you simply didn't know what was likely to happen. Uh, and there was sort of an uncomfortable degree of just muddle and chaos. That's not good for the country or for the parliamentary democracy. So I was very glad not to be part of that. Yeah, sure. I did want to touch on your previous home, which you gave the address of, um, Great North Street. Yes. Um, uh, and the, the, the well, historical significance of the it, property. It was a historically significant property, uh, largely because it was often called Churchill's Home. Now, historically, to be absolutely correct, it was never Churchill's home. But what had happened was that in the 1920s and 1930s, Churchill had been a somewhat discredited and disgraced figure, although a formidable politician nevertheless. And he was out of office for the best part of 15 years or so, sometimes called historically Churchill's wilderness years. Mm. And he was not a rich man. He managed to earn good money all his life by writing newspaper articles and books. But he couldn't afford what an English gentleman, conservative politician, was expected to afford in those days, which was a house in the country and a house in London. But to his rescue came uh, a man called Brendan Bracken, who was also of some historical significance. He was a sort of adventurer, a buccaneering businessman who was in the newspaper business mainly, and he founded one or two papers which are still going today, particularly financial papers like the Investor's Chronicle, but above all, the Financial Times. So Bracken, who was a rich man, but a rather strange man, he was a, a confirmed bachelor, he lived alone, and he had this big house in Lord North Street, which had nine bedrooms. And Bracken, who adored and venerated Churchill when it was very unfashionable to uh, think he had a great future, said to Churchill, look, Winston, I know you can't afford a house in London. I will give you a little suite of rooms in Lord North Street. And you come and go and use them as much as you want. And uh, Churchill was very grateful. I mean, his main home remained Ch Chartwell in Kent, but Chartwell was a good hour and a half's drive mm. from London, so there was many a night when he was very pleased to be in London, and his home was uh, Bracken's house. And Bracken in, encouraged Churchill to um, sort of entertain there. And soon after I bought the house, uh, Winston Churchill's main historical biographer, a great historian called Martin Gilbert, who knew the Churchill papers and archives like nobody else did, sent me a copy of a letter. And it was from two society ladies, or, or sorry, one society lady to another. And the letter 
read, if memory serves. Dear Pamela, went to dinner at Brendan's house in Lord North Street last night. Would have been a wonderful evening, but for the fact that Winston was there, as usual, boring us all rigid, telling us that Germany was going to rearm, four exclamation marks. And I used to get this out and show it to people every so often. I remember one night in the 1990s, I showed it to Harold Macmillan, former Prime Minister who came to dinner, and I showed him this letter and read it to him. I said, oh, my dear boy, it was like this every night, you know. Winston was always banging on about Germany going to rearm, which sounded, of course, uh, rather alarmist, but it was wonderfully true historical warning, and Churchill was about the only serious politician who got Hitler right uh, in yeah. the middle of the 30s. So there was this history, and I used to sit there in that big drawing room, which was indeed, it was 48 foot long, which is wow. huge for a, uh, a London home, and um, sometimes not to feel Churchill's presence at night. So you, you knew you were buying Churchill's old residence, former residence. Oh, yes. Yeah, at the time. Mm. Yeah. Must have been very inspiring for you to, to be working, living in, in that uh, property. It had a sort of spirit of inspiration to it, yes. We'll come on to the reasons why, but you lost that property, I think, didn't you, in later years for financial yes, reasons? Yes, I, I mean, I had a... Um, successful periods of my life and devastating unsuccessful yeah. periods of my life and in one of the devastating unsuccessful periods i went through a period which i sometimes describe as defeat disgrace divorce bankruptcy and jail in that uh, order and uh, bankruptcy made me sell the house as a distressed seller in order to yeah. try and meet my creditors. so what, what, what's who's got the house now do you know who's living there yes i do and I'm sorry, I've temporarily forgotten his That's name, okay. but uh, it might come back to me before the end of the interview. But he's a S businessman. No, business, not, not <clears throat> yeah. in the political uh, no. arena anymore. No, uh, I think. Um, but uh, it's a listed building, like many of mm. those houses. They were all built um, in the reign of Queen Anne. And I was once persuaded by some sort of history of houses company to part a company with £150, rather large sum in the. Um, sort of 70s, to get the history of the house written. And I assumed that somehow or other this house m might have greater historical significance, Bracken and Churchill. Mm. But I was quite wrong. In fact, uh, there was a lot of stuff about how this was already insalubrious neighborhood and strumpets were always being <laughs> evicted by the police from these sort of rather low-grade boarding houses, uh, uh, which, because these houses were by the time I got there, they were smart London houses, but mm. they had been sort of really kind of um, houses of ill repute, cheap, cheap flats and things, <laughs> right. bedsits and things like that. Yeah, as I understand, it, you're not an original. You weren't born and bred in London. I think you origin originally born in yes, Dublin. Was it in uh, because, because of really the accident of war, uh, I was born in Dublin. Um, reason I was born in 1942. Uh, my father was a Canadian fighter pilot, was very badly injured and burned in his RAF plane, and he was in hospital for a long time having plastic surgery. And my mother went home to mum and dad to have the baby. Uh, mum and dad were actually in Dublin because my grandfather was what would now be called British ambassador to Ireland in Dublin. And so there was no food rationing there, fresh mm. eggs, lots of milk compared to wartime Britain. So that's where I was born. So what were your earliest memories of growing up and what were your first thoughts of 
Did you ever have a, a view that you ever wanted to get into politics or you wanted to have a public life or was, because now obviously you, 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 you've taken the cloth as they say. So, I mean, where did this dichotomy come between politics and religion, your earliest well, recollection? Let's go to the earliest memory mm. first because that happens to be historically quite interesting and even politically quite interesting. Right at the end of the war, uh, I was a tiny little boy aged about uh, four and I used to stay quite regularly with my aunt, um, who lived in Putney, in a grand house with uh, the best part of an acre and a half of garden. It was called the Vineyard in Hurlingham Road, still there unaltered to this day. Now, this had been the home of her brother, and her brother was called William Maxwell Aitken, the first Lord Beaverbrook. And in terms of politics, there are only two people who were in the war cabinets in both World War I and World War II. The answer was William Maxwell, King Lord Beaverbrook, and Winston Churchill, mm. and they were great friends. So that's where the sort of politics comes in. The earliest memory was quite a dramatic one. I was playing in the sand pit in my aunt's garden. Uh, suddenly, there came over in the sky a um, sound of a noisy engine and this was a doodlebug which were these mm. flying bombs yeah. which came over and londoners in this period knew them very well my aunt certainly knew them very well because they were unmanned bombs with a sort of engine behind them and they were let off from uh, germany or france and they had just enough petrol to reach central london and uh, they're now been vividly described the bomb would arrive, still whirring and making a noise, and then, like a car which is running out of petrol, it would sort of cough in the sky. And sometimes it would just cough like a car running out of petrol and then go on for a bit. But mm. sometimes when the coughing started, it was going to fall. And that's the time to panic. <laughs> and so, my, and I can, can remember, my, my first sort of vivid memory was my aunt seizing me by the arm in the sand pit and dragging me off, shouting, doodlebug. And um, I just passed a family legend that I didn't want to leave the sand pit. I was enjoying myself. And so then I had the first word almost after mama and dada, whatever it was. How close was the, uh, the doodlebug to where you were staying? Did it? Do you know where it landed? Was it close? This one, I think it certainly didn't land on, on, the, on this house, but yeah. nearby. Yeah. And in terms of your earliest recollection and, and desire and passion to want to get into politics, was that obviously you had it in the family history at a very important level? When did you first think you were going to become a politician? Well, I can remember uh, as a boy politics getting talked about a lot at the lunch table, the breakfast table. And that was because um, I, my father, although a Canadian, after the war, entered the British House of Commons as a British Member of Parliament. So he had friends who used to come and talk politics um, over lunch. Then, of course, I had uh, my great uncle, Uncle Max, who was Lord Beaverbrook, and a formidable uh, name and power because in addition to being a uh, politician and a member of the War Cabinet, he was Minister of Aircraft Production during the war. Uh, he also owned newspapers. He owned the Daily Express, the Sunday Express, and the Evening Standard in London and one or two others elsewhere in the country. So he was a sort of big noise kind of politically, and of course I knew him very well. Also, I had a Canadian aunt who was a 
an MP in Canada in the House of Commons in Ottawa. So politics was in the atmosphere. Uh, on the whole, I think as a boy, I used to think these politicians talked so much and were so pleased themselves and so boring. I thought the rot ought to be stopped and no one should go near politics. But I think I sort of changed that view when I got into quite young school debating and got interested. And I think that's when I started to think of myself perhaps one day as a politician. Yeah. I mean, you went through through Eton. I think you went to, was it Oxford you went to as yes, well? Yes, I went through a rather traditional education. My father, who really had not much money, uh, was enormously proud of having been able to scrape enough money to send his son to what was then thought to be, a, a, and still is, a great school, Eton, and then on to Oxford. So I was very, very lucky and got a very good education. But politics was always part of that life. I was president of the Oxford University Conservatives Association. I was an Oxford Union debater and was vice president of that and so on. So politics were around in my life. Mm. And I actually stood for parliament, astonishingly, by today's standards, for the first time aged 22 uh, as a parliamentary candidate in the Midlands for a seat called Meriden. Luckily, I didn't get in. <laughs> that is young, is it? I don't know what the youngest uh, MP today is, but there, there are quite a few young ones. There are some young ones. In, in Parliament today. So you rose fairly rapidly, I think, didn't you, through the through the, the ranks? You were MP. Was it Ithanit? I'm not sure the precise um Well, I got into Parliament quite young. Yeah. And I had a job, which would now be called a special advisor. In those days, it was called a political secretary to my godfather, a great friend of my father, who at last had died by this time. But my godfather was somebody called Solwyn Lloyd, and he took me into the Treasury as his political secretary, or as we would now call it, special advisor. So at a very young age, I again got involved mm. in politics. It was under the major government when you became a minister, I believe. Is that correct? Yes, I had a very long time on the back benches by today's standards. I was 18 years an ordinary backbencher, but they were very interesting years. I was not a minister during those years, but uh, we had um, things like the Falklands War, we had mm. um, the fall of the Labour government, uh, Margaret Thatcher's uh, arrival and all the enormously controversial, but on the whole good things I would say that happened, like the battles with the trade unions and the miners' strike uh, and... Um, of course, as then there were first arguments about Europe. So it was a very worthwhile time to be in Parliament, which mattered much more than it does today, although I think power is now coming back post the mm. referendum uh, to, to Parliament. But uh, I loved my time in Parliament and was very, very interested by what was going on around me. Mm. And at the time of your, shall we say, your um, your, your your fall from grace, you, your career was very much in the ascendancy at that time because, I mean, the, the people were, you were being touted as some, some quarters, I think, for the future Prime Minister. Yes, that label has got into the sort of legends and repeated again accurate? and again. Yeah. Well, uh, I suppose it was true in the sense that people were saying, you know, Jonathan Aitken could easily be one day a future Prime Minister. Uh, however, this didn't at the time make me big-headed only because... I am enough a realist to know that, first of all, if you were to try and fill a room with all the people of my generation alone, let alone going back historically, who've been told, oh, he's a future prime minister or she's a future prime minister, you would need Wembley Stadium. Yeah. Uh, in my time, there were at least a 
doesn't quite. So where was this talk coming from? Was it from within the political circles or was it the press sort of promulgating these ideas? Well, the whole country in a way, but certainly the media and the uh, regards sort of politics like a kind of political horse race, you know, who's ahead at Beaches Brook, who's going over the jumps well, who's looking a very promising runner with stamina. And um, by the um, 1990s, uh, the general's sort of talk, which I was part of, was that maybe John Major's government wouldn't last very long, and if so, there would have to be a leadership change, and if so, who was in the cabinet, who might be a potential prime minister, and uh, those people were, and uh, none of them made it, uh, were Ken Clark, Michael Heseltine, Michael Portillo, me, Michael Howard, and I've forgotten one or two names that have fallen into obscurity. But actually, none of us became Prime Minister, but still at the time, there was a lot of speculation both within Parliament and in the press about who might be the next leader of the Conservative so Party or Prime Minister. So it's the press who are bigging people up, yourself included, and it's the press who I think you'll agree have played a significant role in your, in your life. I mean, you, you were yourself a journalist, I think, for the I was, I was at one for, point. Um, best part of eight years what was the time called a Fleet Street journalist, mm -hmm. because in those days all the newspapers yeah. were concentrated on Fleet Street, and I enjoyed that enormously. Um, I worked m mainly for the London Evening Standard, uh, but I also wrote for quite a few other papers in Fleet Street, like the Daily Express or the Daily Mail or the. So were you a political journalist? You no, know, I was. I tell you, I was. My, on the whole, a feature writer, and feature writers can pick their subjects. But my best years were probably the periods of 1967 to 68, which was still a time when newspapers were ahead of television. And, for example, I was sent out to Vietnam as a war correspondent and had a fascinating time there. I also went as a war correspondent to uh, the Middle East, to Africa. But uh, I actually went all over the world doing stories. Um, the American presidential election of 1968 was um, extremely exciting. Uh, and all sorts of things happened. There were assassinations, Bobby Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson fell, Nixon got elected against every expectation. But a young journalist goes where the news is. Mm. And um, I remember writing Articles, for example, or series, as it was called in those days, five articles, one every day, for the Evening Standard, with the headline, tune on, tu sorry, tune in, turn on, drop out. It was all about the rise of uh, the drug culture, uh, the protest movement against Vietnam, the pop music revolution led by Dylan, the Beatles, mm. uh, all of whom I interviewed in my time. Uh, so I, I had a, a lot of fun. Sounds amazing. I watch a, a ringside seat, the spectacle of world events. diverse, and yet you chose to go to move over into politics anyway after that. Well, I do remember once wandering around in Vietnam uh, with some other correspondents. And first of all, Vietnam was a political mess and a politically created mess. But I also could see that 
going on being a journalist was not going to be satisfying because you write about things, but you're ultimately a spectator and sure. a commentator. You're outside the arena of decisions, whereas in politics you're in the arena mm. and you're already doing things and you're changing things. And so for one reason or another, I never thought I would stay in journalism for the rest of my life. I thought it was a great young man's world, but I always wanted to do something. Uh, I didn't want to be a somebody who was a sort of commentator and a columnist or a, even a television presenter. It's interesting you say that being a journalist is almost like being a spectator on the outside. Yes. And yet it was journalists and the media ultimately brought brought your political career to an end, wasn't it? Well, my political career ended in uh, personal tragedy. Uh, I had to resign. I then got prosecuted for perjury, pleaded guilty and went to jail. But it was really my fault, not the newspapers. Mm. Fault, but certainly the newspapers were after me, particularly mm. the Guardian newspaper was... Uh, but you were after them in the first instance, weren't you? Well, I think it was sort of two-way street. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, Claim and counterclaim. Uh, uh, but however it, um, uh, it happened, I mean, I take the responsibility and accept the blame and say it was my fault. The Guardian um, were not entirely straightforward, but they were you know, after a scalp, and they got one. Mm. Mm. I mean, for the listeners, can you just touch up on briefly, I don't want the, the, the fine detail of what actually happened, what were the, the, the court case and why you were ended up Well, what happened was perjury. that while I was a minister, uh, I was defence minister at the time, number two at defence, I stayed in the Ritz Hotel in Paris and my bill for about £800 was paid by a hospitable friend who was a godfather to one of my children, so I knew him very well, but he was a very rich man, but he was an Arab. He was a Saudi Arabian. And Saudi Arabians are the kind of people who often generously pick up people's hotels bills. It's sort of almost normal for them, like an Englishman buying another a drink. So it wasn't the sort of biggest deal, and certainly wasn't anything corrupt about it. But under the kind of rules of ministerial conduct, guidelines, it wasn't sort of no law was broken, I should not have, strictly speaking, accepted his hospitality. And no one was suggesting that there was... Could anything. you have accepted it but disclosed it? Would that have been okay? It would have been okay. That would have been fine, yes. yeah. But it, it was a sort of grey area rather than a black and white mm. area. Anyway, um, what brought me down, as so often happens in life, was not actually accepting his hospitality, but was covering up accepting his hospitality. And that was silly of me because it really wasn't all that big a deal. Mm. But I think it would have been slightly embarrassing. You know, why Do you know why it? you did that? Why? Yeah, why you covered it up when, with hindsight, you, know, you can I say it was such I've a minor indiscretion. It's a good question. I've often asked myself the same because really it wasn't worth doing, covering it up. I think it was a combination of pride and fear. Mm. The pride was, actually I was quite well off. I could have perfectly well afforded to uh, mm. pay my own hotel bill, but I didn't want people to think I was some sort of cheapskate who <laughs> had to be, have his hotel bill paid for. So that was the kind of pride. The fear uh, was, well, it would look kind of a bit iffy, a bit dodgy, uh, and in the hands of a newspaper, a hostile newspaper, having a bill paid by an Arab businessman mm. looks somehow much worse than it really is, especially if you know the Arab businessman as well. I knew this one. So it looked, kind of, and I was afraid of a sort of critical story 
critical story wouldn't have admitted mounted very much, but it would have been kind of embarrassing, mm. and I was afraid of the embarrassment. Mm. Because ultimately, of course, it, you were prosecuted for perjury, and I think you were sent down, was it 18 months was the sentence, although you spent some time? Yes, I mean, again, there was a saga here, but yeah. cutting to the quick, while in the course of a libel case, which again, rather foolishly was brought to me, brought nothing to do with the Ritz Hotel, but sometimes one thing starts somewhere and ends up somewhere mm -hmm. else. I said uh, about this bill in the Ritz Hotel, my wife paid the bill. And that seemed a credible story at the time. My wife was around, she could have paid the bill. But um, there was a murky sort of subplot, which is Mr. Al Fired owned the Ritz Hotel, and he was in league with The Guardian, which, of course, I didn't know. Uh, and so he was very helpful, as ho good hotels should not be, in exposing the details. Mm. And um, anyway, there it was. Uh, I told this lie. My wife paid the bill. And once I had said that on oath in a, uh, a courtroom, uh, that is perjury. And uh, once the Guardian knew that, they started a campaign to have me prosecuted for perjury. Uh, and once that started, I pleaded guilty. So your case, for li was it libel against the Guardian? Yes. Collapsed, in effect. Yes. And then uh, the, the case basically goes, the boots on the other foot with them coming, doing a campaign against you for a case for perjury. Yes, they did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And ultimately led to you being sentenced to, was it, I think it was 18 months for perjury, which seems uh, a, a remarkably long sentence. Well, given some uh, of the sentences yeah, that go I for far worse offences. I, I guilty. Yeah. Uh, and perjury is a bit of a funny crime. It's committed every day in cases of high and low importance in every courtroom in the country, just about. But I think it's not entirely unfair to say if someone who commits perjury is in a position of trust, mm. as a, somebody who's a prominent politician yeah, is, fair point. you know, the um, law will come down hard on you. Mm. So I never have complained about my sentence. In fact, I thought it was perfectly fair. And there were people who thought it should have been a tougher sentence. Um, there were people who thought it should have been a more lenient sentence. But uh, I accepted. I knew that once uh, I pleaded guilty to perjury, the... Uh, probability, if not the certainty, was that I would get a prison sentence. Did you know, in your heart of hearts, as soon as this evidence came to th fore from, you know, f uh, fired and this this receipt from the hotel, did you know in your heart of hearts that you were going to do time? As soon as it was exposed, mm. yes. Mm. I really did know that my life was over as I had known it after I'd had a career for 25 years. Uh, what does it feel like in that in that moment of realisation? From from having a, a very wonderful, beautiful upbringing, having everything you could possibly have and achieve in life, right to the pin, pinnacle of being touted for the next PM. Well, it was an enormously dramatic moment, yeah. tragic moment, humbling moment, a disastrous moment, every adjective you can think of. It couldn't really have been worse. But I knew I was ruined, but I didn't think I was broken. Which is strange. Spiritually, do you mean? Well, it is sort of. I, I, I was 53 years old or something like that when all this happened, which should have been my prime. Mm. Uh, and suddenly, instead of being uh, a cabinet minister, I'm going to be a convict. And so that is a pretty dramatic fall. And though that was 
awful, not least because of my own feelings of guilt. I mean, I'd let, let an awful lot of people down, sure. starting with my family and my constituents and my colleagues in Parliament. Um, I, I had uh, wrecked not only my own life, but I'd broken a very, very serious sort of bond of trust with a lot of people, and that was a very heavy burden to bear. Um, so life as I knew it was over, and that was... Uh, deeply um, hurtful and sorrowing to me personally. On the other hand, I didn't ever think that despite being ruined, that life was over. I always had enough of a perspective to say, well, something will uh, start again. I didn't actually know what it was. Maybe it was going back to being a writer. Maybe it was going to be possible to get something going in business. Um, it would certainly be different and probably much more So were you late. having those sort of positive thoughts from the outset? Okay, my life's changed. This is a watershed moment. I'm no longer going to be a cabinet minister. I'm going to be uh, an inmate for a period of time, mixing with convicts and convicted of all sorts of horrible and heinous crimes. Did you, did you think, hang on a second, I, I can take some time out here and do something different, stroke better with my life going forward? Because clearly that's what you've gone and done well, to I great effect. My mind roamed across a vast range of possibilities. I mean, my children, who were teenagers at the time, used to say, what are you going to do, Dad, mm. when you come out of prison? And I said, well, I don't know, but somehow I'll get going. And I said, well, you know, I could be a minicab driver. And my daughters fell about laughing because one of the things I'm not very good at was finding my way as a motorist well, around good, London. Good for teenagers said, to drive you, them around. You would always get lost. <laughs> you know, how on earth can you be yeah. a minicab driver? Uh, but leaving aside, uh, I, I thought life would go on. I do how it would go on. I hadn't a clue. Perhaps I had one thought at the back of my mind, uh, which was that long before I was in any kind of trouble, I used to say, you know, one day if I uh, had another uh, sort of chance, I would rather like to go back to university. Um, I think I thought I'd rather like to go back to university as sort of an assistant professor of politics or something like that. But nevertheless, there's a streak in me of uh, a student or even an academic monkey who likes to learn, mm -hmm. likes to immerse himself. And so I, I did think, well, maybe, you know, there'll be... You know, new subjects to be mastered, books to be written. I don't know, but but, uh, mm. but I, I, I was, I think, ruined but not totally heartbroken. Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout-outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger. Just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. I've read your your book, which I think is the second autobiography in the in the in the series, if we can call it that. Your uh, porridge and passion, which picks up from when you got convicted, sent down yes. to your time in prison, and then then coming out shortly after. And it's it's a remarkable read. It's a fascinating. I really enjoyed the book, by the way. Thank you. See by all the uh, all the pages I've I've marked there with for for interest and comment. It it really is fascinating. What I find particularly interesting is your, if shall we say, your open mindedness to going in and and mixing. I mean, most people, most regular Joes on the street who get convicted. You know, if I went in like a regular sort of middle class Jewish boy <laughs> gets gets sent down for 
that period of time, I would be absolutely, as they say, bricking myself. But you, you, you show none of that um, sort of fear, and you fit it. You appeared to fit in into your surroundings and with your fellow inmates very, very quickly, uh, and they didn't judge you any more than you seemed to not judge them. Well, what happened was this. I knew I had to go to jail, almost certainly. I then said, well, how do I prepare for jail? And I had a long wait because of the delays in our justice system, best part of two years, astonishingly, between really effectively putting in a plea of guilty uh, I put it in, first of all, in a police statement, uh, and, and then actually standing in the dock of the Old Bailey and getting sentenced. And during those two years, I did my homework. I tried to find anybody um, of whatever station and class from really very dodgy, rough criminals, and I managed to find a few to, um, you know, blue, blue <laughs> How do you collar. go about identifying rough criminals well, you, to do? You, you know, you, <laughs> to somebody you. knows somebody. <laughs> but I, I poured a lot of glasses of wine down the throats of people who had been to prison. Sure. And I said, now tell me what it's really like. And then I even found a prison officer or two. I found a ex-prison governor. And all this was sort of research on what is on the whole an unmentionable, untouched subject. How do you cope with a prison sentence? Mm. So I had quite a good idea, thanks to these people, what I was going in to face. And one of the things I learned, which I know now very well, and I tell people, because people sometimes who are going to plead guilty come and see me, and I say, first thing, you needn't be afraid. It's a test, a difficult test, but it's not a um, something which should scare you rigid, because... It's sort of human life, and there's a lot of mm. quite good things about prison. There's a mm. lot of humor. There's a lot of milk of human kindness. It is uncomfortable and awkward and um, you know, very disconcerting, but you know, can you survive it? So by the time I was actually entering prison, I had said to myself, convinced myself, you know, this is going to be difficult, but somehow I will get through it and manage to get through it. How do you get through it? Well, first of all, just a few very simple ground rules. The worst thing you can do, and I tell this to people, think of yourself as a tall poppy, someone who's important, who's been in the headlines. You're not. You know, all men are equal in the prison uniform. You're all on the floor. And the best thing is just sort of become part of the wallpaper. Mm. You know, don't. Uh, secondly, which I didn't really know at the time, is find something useful to do, which is actually of service and help to the prison community. Now, in my case, I had a fantastic stroke of luck very, very early on, about day three of my prison sentence. Uh, a young fellow prisoner uh, came up to me, and I was just keeping my head down, sort of standing around doing nothing. You have to waste huge quantities of time in prison. So I was just being as unobtrusive. And this guy saw me and said, uh, I didn't think he recognized me. Um, uh, you know, I was famous outside, but in prison, I was just another guy with a funny accent. Um, and so this young boy in his teens almost, or very early 20s, suddenly came up to me in a conspiratorial whisper and said, hey, I've got a problem. Could you do me a favor? My problem is I've had a letter from my brief and I can't read it. Could you read it for me? So I read him this letter, and it was indeed from his sister. He, he couldn't read at all, he couldn't, or he couldn't understand the legal And this speak. is a very common problem yeah. in, in prison. Poor literacy or non-literacy, uh, people mm. are illiterate. And this was an 
uneducated young man who'd been truant from school and he couldn't read um, uh, this letter. And the letter was from his sister and said, you and your wife and child are going to be evicted from your council flat in Lambeth in South London uh, next week for non-payment of rent. And when I gave him this bad news, uh, the guy sort of climbed up the wall in terror, anger, hysteria, shouting. The only coherent thing apart from a lot of obscenities was he kept shouting, what shall I do? What shall I do? And as it happens, considering we were both uh, prisoners in HMP Belmarsh, he could not have found a better and wiser and more expert source of advice because for the last 24 years as an MP, I had been doing eviction cases. Incredible. Um, so I knew all the little wrinkles about how to get a bit more time, you know, get a cousin to pay off the rent arrears by five pounds a week. The Lambeth Council won't evict for a bit at least to so get more time and so on. So I told him all these things and he thought it was brilliant. Uh, and then his face fell. He said, I got another. I said, what you must do, you must write back to your mm. solicitor and write to the court and say you've arranged for Cousin Charlie to pay five pounds a week and you're coming out of prison soon. You're going to get a job and pay it off. And uh, he saw that all oh, this was brilliant. And then his, his face fell and he said, hey, I've got another problem. I don't do no reading nor no writing neither. Uh -huh. Could you write the letter for me? So I said, sure. So I wrote a letter for him, really a letter of appeal against eviction and some suggestions of how he would pay the money off. And when he'd finished, I'd finished this, I read it to him, and he said, oh, it's quite a good letter, he said. Um, and then he signed it. And then instead of doing the expected thing, like putting it in the post box or putting it in his pocket, he did something completely unexpected. He turned himself into a sort of 18th century town crier and held this letter aloft going down the wing, shouting at the top of his voice, Hey, guys, this MP, Geezer of ours, he's got fantastic joined-up writing. <laughs> and from, <laughs> this, this advertising for my graphological skills yeah. fell on the ears of a very receptive audience because from that moment onwards, every night outside my cell, there were although young men, my fellow prisoners, wanting letters read to them or written for them on a wide variety of subjects, including the most intimate subjects imaginable, their sex lives, their love lives. And so wanting you to write letters on their behalf or to read letters that they received to them? Both, or both, or both? both, both. Yeah. I was a sort of, you know, agony uncle, come amanuensis, letter writer. First of all, I found that very interesting, number one, because you don't just write the letter, you have to talk about it, you have to ask them mm. a lot of questions. So I, and I got into the community of my wing and instead of being you know, that awful Tory MP and cabinet minister geezer, I became, oh, he's not a bad bloke, you know, he helped me with my letter and he's got a sense of humor, he's all mm. right. And this transformed my sort of status uh, in the little community of the wings and the prison. And um, from that moment on, things looked a lot better for me in, as a prisoner. Mm. And we should say this is, a, I think it was at Belmarsh, wasn't it, which was not didn't have the greatest reputation, I think, in those days anymore. Well, than, I don't Belmarsh know. is Britain's highest security prison yeah. now, from one of one earth. I was sent there. Because well, I wasn't the high security. Yeah. Yeah, but it was just Why were you sent there? Well, it was purely admin of the day. The prison service operates on the basis of sort of almost railway line rules. Yeah, but you, when you were doing your research and prep on what it's like to be in prison, you couldn't have, in your wildest dreams, thought you were going to end up in Belmarsh. No, I did not think I would end up in Belmarsh. That was a surprise. <laughs> that a shock to the Britain's system. Britain's number one high security prison. Yeah. But actually, uh, uh, Belmarsh, although being tough, was very well run. It was sort of um, 
Uh, you know, there were plenty of officers in those days that aren't nearly as good numbers now. They were strict, but they were fair. You knew where you were. Uh, you got shouted at if you stepped out of line in a queue. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, you were, it was like being in a very tough school. Mm. Um, and you were mixing with some hardened criminals. Oh, definitely. You? I mean, uh, my next door neighbor was a guy called Razor Smith who was doing... I think nine life sentences consecutively. Wow. Uh, strangely, he became rather a friend, uh, and uh, we got on, and still we are in touch. Well, I think he's now out, isn't he, an author now as well, a writer? Uh, Razor Smith has had great success with his life. He is A, a successful author, and B, he's an editor. Uh, he is the, uh, I think, the deputy editor or the features editor of, of a very successful paper which no one outside prison has read, but it's called Inside Time. And it's a sort of prisoner's monthly newspaper. And it um, is distributed free to every prisoner. And it's full of advertising on the whole from slightly odd solicitors. Um, but um, it, uh, it's a good paper. And he he's a pivotal figure in it. Mm. So there's some fascinating characters in there. Can you just recount the story, which I've read in the book, about the the inmate who wanted to thank you by letting you choose something from his collection of um, his yes. literature, shall we say? Well, this was actually a rather important turning point in my mm. um, prison journey. When I was doing all this letter writing, one of the guys for whom I wrote letters was an Irish burglar, uh, predictably enough, called Paddy. And Paddy was, in addition to being a burglar, a man of considerable drive and energy and charm, and I used to write letters for him to his relatives. And one day he said to me, look, you've written all these letters. Why don't you come and have a cup of coffee in my cell? And so I did, rather a mark of trust from one prisoner to another. And we talked, as prisoners do, because you've got all the time in the world for conversation about the kind of things that prisoners often talk about, their um, regrets, their disappointments, their families, what they're going to do when they get out, that kind of thing. And then suddenly Paddy changed conversational gear. And as no politician, I immediately recognized the gear in which he changed. It was what I would call a vote of thanks type formal gear. And he cleared his throat and became rather formal. He says, <clears throat> Jono, on behalf of the lads, I'd like to thank you for all these letters you've been writing for me and for others. And to show you how much we appreciate you, I've been uh, asked to give you a present. And the present you can have is anything you'd like to choose, completely free of charge, completely free of charge, from my library. And then he dived under the left-hand side of his bed and started rummaging around in a tattoo cardboard box. And I wondered for a moment, what learned term is going to come out from uh, under the bed of a, a library of a man who can't really read or write himself? <laughs> what actually came out, and he spread it in front of me, and it's a rich panoply, was a selection of hardcore porn magazines. And... I, after a fleeting moment of temptation, said, thanks, but no thanks, Paddy. And Paddy got rather angry with me. So why did you say no thank you? And um, uh, are you judging me? Are you sneering at me? Are you looking down at me? I said, no, no, no. He said, I used to like those first kind of magazines. He said, why did you say no thank you? And then suddenly he had a very ingenious idea. Why I might have said no thank you? Oh, he said, if it's boys you're after. And he dived on the right-hand side of his bed and started rummaging around. I said, no, no, it's not... Um, uh, I used to like those first kind of magazines. Why do you say no thank you then? And I said very reluctantly, because I was no kind of 
preacher man or religious man. I was sort of stumbling around in the dark, really, with a kind of half-faith, half-looking. And But I said, no, no, I, I used to like this kind of magazines, but these days I'm on a different path. Oh, what kind of path would that be then? And again, I didn't want to say for the same reasons, but, uh, but I actually said, well, if you really want to know, Patty, it's the path of having a faith. I'm studying the teachings of Jesus and thinking about them and my mistakes, and and uh, it, it's helping me a bit. You know, that's the path I'm on these days. And he said something very unexpected after a long pause. He said, you know, I'd really like to try that path myself. Minan used to believe in all that Jesus stuff, and um, she's got something, and I can sort of see as you're here, maybe you've got something. So I'd like to try that path. How do I get on that path? And after some rather emotional discussion on his side, I said, well, what you do, Paddy, I think you, you, you pray. That's why you pray. So he said, oh, well, let's pray then. Uh, now, I didn't really know how to pray out loud. I mean, Church of England was rather slow to do <laughs> praying out loud. So anyway, we did. First night, second night, third night, fourth night, fifth night. And then Paddy said... So oh, this, this was you going to his cell? Yes. I would go to him and he'd come to mine. Yeah. Anyway, we used to pray for sort of 20 minutes or so uh -huh. each night, but out loud. Um, and it was talk about the blind needing the blind. It was not sort of, you know, very good praying, but still, it was asking God for help and so on. And then Paddy said... You know, this stuff's far too good to keep to just the two of us. And I thought he might mean that he was going to bring in another Irish burglar to make our little <laughs> twosome or threesome. Holy Trinity. <laughs> in fact, um, uh, Paddy was a young man of great drive and ambition, and he had in him the qualities of a good recruiting sergeant. So he shot off around the jail saying, um, anyone want to come and pray for, with me and Jono tonight? If so, turn up HB3, cell 41B or something. And um, so... Um, uh, that night, I always remember, about eight people showed up. And some of them, I can remember their names, but I can remember almost all their occupations. Uh, there was a blagger who was an armed robber. There was a blower who cracked safes for a living. There, were, um, there was a kite who and just bounce checks. He bounced so many of them, they flew around like kites. There was a, somebody called the Big Dipper of Brixton, who was an <laughs> ace pickpocket. <laughs> Um, there were a couple of lifers, a couple of murderers, a couple more Irish burglars, and um, it was certainly an unusual prayer group that <laughs> assembled, um, gave a new mis meaning to the Christian term, a cell group. Yeah. Anyway, there we were, and we did pray together, and astonishingly, sort of something happened, uh, mysterious, um, uh, who knows what power was operating, but... Um, then we were all together in a, this prison for months and months, and we met every night to pray. Now, of course, some people walked out very early thinking it was complete nonsense. Uh, others stuck at it, but a, a group stayed together, and we, and it's had quite an impact. I don't think I'd be a prison chaplain now if I hadn't had that experience of uh, gladly and uh, cheerfully uh, you know, sharing prayers with people and seeing what a difference it could make some people's lives, including mine, of calming them down or giving them hope. Um, so that was a very good experience. It was sort of uh, not kind of conventional religion at all, but it was nevertheless spiritual, and it, we were praying to uh, God, and we were getting somewhere. Some of us. And you think that was like the formative stages of you finding your your faith and becoming going on? It to was. It was very important influence. I mean, there were other things, of course. Mm -hmm. 
I was reading the Bible. I'd had people who had been trying to help me. Uh, when you get into bad trouble, there are people who sort of come out of um, the Christian woodwork and want to help you. So, and when I finished my prison sentence, I was uh, very interested by this time. I'd found great um, degree of fulfillment and also interest in um, trying to get on this religious path of prayer. But also, there was this subject I knew nothing about at all called theology, the study of God. And I then had a very interesting career change after coming out of prison. I went to the one place in Britain which had worse food and worse plumbing uh, and more uncomfortable beds than a prison. This was an Anglican theological college called Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. Yeah. And I went there for a rather longer sentence, uh, two years, and um, studied and got a, a degree in theology. And um, that was all sort of part extremely of well, I understand. You got a distinction, I think. I did, yes. Yeah, I got well the government of a first... That was amazing because I'd only got a third in law 30 years earlier. Um, but um, uh, it, was, it was a good experience. And, um, I, and, but I didn't actually feel at the end of my uh, passing all the exams, getting the degree, doing a lot of going to chapel and going on missions, I didn't feel I was actually called to be a priest. So I didn't think of it at that time. What did you anticipate you would be doing with your studies and your experiences? Well, I knew I would be, first of all, a, a, a you know, much better person and a, mm. a good Christian. And I was interested in uh, prison ministry. It doesn't have to be done uh, through the ordained ministry. And uh, I actually had some difficulty after I came out. Um, not only were people very cynical about me, but also in practical terms, a lot of prisons wouldn't let me back in. They're sort of they were quite difficult, though they were in those days about ex-prisoners going back into prison. So what I actually did was to, I had a friend who'd been very helpful to me, who was a famous prisoner himself and started a prison charity called uh, Prison Fellowship in America. His name was Chuck Colson. His name was a famous name. And he... Um, uh, invited me to come with him into American prisons, and I did a lot of preaching and praying there, but as a layman. Hmm. Chuck Colson was uh, part of the Nixon administration, wasn't he? Yes, uh, Chuck Colson in his day was the second most uh, vilified man in America, Nixon being number one. Colson was part of the Watergate disaster for Nixon, um, rather unfairly in Colson's case, because he hadn't actually done anything very much, but he had um, nevertheless sort of created a climate in which um, people could go and do burglary jobs to find papers embarrassing to Nixon's opponents. So he went to prison, it happens almost exactly the same time that I did, mm. I mean, Chuck, uh, seven months. So he was being vilified over in the States. He was. You, you were vilified something chronically over here yes e even through your whole period uh, tenure in prison i mean the, well I, I was slightly unlucky that in those days it was big news for a cabinet minister or a politician to go to prison to Things tell have changed to tell a bit since then, I, I misspoke <laughs> yes but um at the at the time no cabinet minister had been sent to jail since the time of the tudors so i was news it was a long, hot summer when there wasn't very much news around. And the tabloids uh, played every trick in the books to get 
it was uh, information about my life in prison. A lot of it was actually invented and untrue. Never mind. I was going to say it's beyond news. It's, it's creating, creating, curating lies upon lies. I mean, the story of them trying to get you, as it were, into bed with another inmate there. In part, well, that was an extraordinary operation, which luckily failed, but. What happens in prison intelligence gathering operation, they listen into phones or prisoners' phone calls. They picked up the fact that three prisoners had been on the phone to a well-known Sunday tabloid, and they'd hatched something which was later called the Aitken Drugs Plot. And what this consisted of was, or going to consist of, was going to give me a, a drug in my tea called rohypnol which is it's a date rate drug it, it is yes yeah. it, it sort of paralyzes you but you look as though you are perfectly normal and they were then the plot was to put me in bed in a prison cell with a man a naked man and take a photograph and say Aitken is really gay that was that and, was the and, and give a payoff to the uh, oh yes the it was 40,000 pounds I believe it was going to change hands for this a lot story of a lot of money and uh, luckily the prison and I may say when I heard this I wasn't sort of terrified I burst into roars of laughter partly because the three guys who were going to organize it where they were the kind of guys with whom the phrase he couldn't organize a piss up in a brewery it was true they were and I had you know friends by this time in the prison who which simply wouldn't have allowed it to happen yeah but nevertheless it, it wasn't sort of episode a weird episode I just think that the you're probably where the uh, the the tragic death of the uh, the, the lady um, Karen Flack, Flack yes. who passed away took her own life. Uh, I think it was last week. Um, not least we think because of all the vilification she was getting, the bad press on social media, which we didn't have in your time, yeah. but being hounded and pressed, you know, and the the threat of prison sentence perhaps hanging over her as well. I mean, can you see some similarities between the way you were hounded and the way Well, there was, was certainly plenty of hounding and extraordinary publicity and extraordinary... Uh, I think that, in a funny way, Caroline Flack had probably led an emotionally sheltered life. Mm. I mean, I hadn't. I'd knocked around the world. Politics is quite a rough old trade. I'd had pretty rude things said uh, during the 20 years and written about me while I was in politics. And I, even though it was awful, I don't want to minimize it, but still, I always deep down knew the truth of the old saying, I mean, sticks and stones can break my bones, mm. but words never hurt me. So some of these sort of nonsensical stories that used to appear, like how I was selling nuclear weapons to Saddam Hussein or something when I was defense minister, astonishing stuff used to be. But in the end, you, you cope with it. But I, if you're emotionally fragile and you've never been um, subject to noisy criticism, you haven't knocked around the world and seen life's ups and downs, I can see why somebody under that kind of pressure mm. can crack. So it's a certain resilience that you, you have. I innate resilience somewhere or? in my DNA, there must be some resilience. Yeah, yeah. It's quite remarkable. So you, you come out, you've learned all these life lessons, you've made some wonderful friendships which are still with you today. In fact, I think one of them is a godfather to Yes, you. I'm Paddy's daughter. I'm a godfather. Incredible. Paddy's daughter is. Yeah. Well, you, just, you couldn't make it up, really, no, could no. you? I mean, it, it is an incredible story. And now you're you, you're now a, a chaplain in, is it Pentonville? Pentonville. Yeah. No, I, I was trained to be a priest just in my Wycliffe or went through the educational qualifications. I mean, I know my theology past exams and I'm a a regular church guy, but um, one of the mysteries is why does God call people to the priesthood? 
nobody quite knows. What does that mean? What does that mean, being called well, to you? Well, in my case, it means God seems to be saying in your prayer life, I want you to do something for mm. me. I want you to serve me. And in the end, it seemed to be, uh, I mean, I said, well, how? You know, actually, I was rather rude back. I said, please shut up, God. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be a vicar. Um, I'm too old and got a comfortable life. But then this mysterious whispering in my ear seems like actually I meant I wanted you to be not a vicar. I wanted you to be a prison chaplain. And uh, then I realized I could do that. I mean, I'd been doing sort of lay prison ministry as a layman in America, so it wasn't completely unfamiliar territory. So I then talked to a bishop, and the bishop said, actually, after doing quite a thorough testing job, you know, we would like you to be ordained and uh, work as a prison chaplain. So that's what I've been doing for the yeah. last year or two. Yeah, fantastic. And, and what do you see has changed in the prison uh, in the prison society today to how it was when you were. I mean, obviously, illiteracy, I would understand, is still a big issue. Drugs were a big thing when you were there. I would imagine they still are today. What's changed for the better and what's changed for the worse? Or has nothing changed? Well, I think the things that have changed for the better is that perhaps as a society as a whole, we've become a bit more tolerant, a bit more um, understanding of some of the causes of crime. They're not excuses for crime, but the atmosphere of some prisons is easier in human terms. Um, in my time 20 years ago, it was a bit more military. I think men in prison were much more buttoned up within themselves about their problems. Now it's a bit warmer. The milk of human kindness flows down the wing quite well. A lot of bad people in prison, but also plenty of good people. And so the sort of feel of prisons is perhaps more humane than it used to be. On the other hand, prisons are more dangerous. And that's really the government's fault. There was a terrible mistake made when George Osborne was chancellor, and they imposed across-the-board cuts of, I think, 28% or something. And this resulted, because the only thing to cut, really, in prison budgets is manpower. The staffing. The staffing. Uh, over 80% of all prison costs are staffing costs. So a third of the prison officers left. They were encouraged to leave. They were given early retirement. And that was a bit of a disaster, because you not in, then lost um, a big number of prison officers, but also you lost experienced prison officers. And the prison started to become very dangerous through shortage of manpower. It also coincided with the rise of some new drugs like spice. Um, and um, once prisoners realized that, you know, if they uh, kicked off, as they say in prison, started to punch up, mm. no one was really going to stop it. Uh, the punch-ups got wilder and more violent. Uh, and you know, searching of people for drugs or knives coming in. And uh, there was a really pretty dangerous period about uh, three years ago when um, there were something like 40,000 quite serious assaults every year of prisoners against prisoners. And then um, another 7,000 assaults of prisoners against prison officers. That's a staggering Some amount. of them pretty nasty. Yeah. And that, you know, in a big London prison um, like Penville, meant that there was a lot of dangerous violence and the bad atmosphere that flows from that. 
Well, things have improved. Uh, Theresa May, as Prime Minister, really overruled the new Chancellor, Philip Hound, and got an extra $500 million to spend on recruiting some of the prison officers they'd lost. Mm. Uh, uh, so that has improved, although there's problems again because the recruitment of police is draining away prison officers. Um, so prisons are still quite tense. Uh, I was myself the prison chaplain at Penderville over the prison over the Christmas period, and that's a dodgy period because people's moods and morale goes right down for obvious reasons. They, they suddenly realise they're without yeah. their families, sure. And the chances of self-harming and suicide goes very high. We actually made as a team good young officers. I hope the chaplain paid his part, but um, a real kind of great effort to almost love bomb those people who we mm. had intelligence were talking about topping themselves or were very fragile emotionally and um, we visited them often as much as sort of four or five times a day for chats and it did make a difference mm. so we need to give more thought and attention to prisons we also need to think not just people in prison but what's going to happen when they come out and the most gloomy statistic I know is that um, out of every Hundred prisons released uh, on any one day from prison. Uh, Fifty are going to reoffend and probably be back in jail within a year, and seventy within two years. That's a dismal, dismal failure. So, what can be done to overcome that or to reduce those? Well, those I, I think we numbers? do need to. There are some things you can do. Some of them very practical, like don't release prisoners with drug problems on a Friday when they can't sort of get anything from rehabilitation clinics or uh, to um, you know social security payments. Otherwise just go thieving again. Um, but uh, I think um, you know, if you you're not going to stop people reoffending, but you can cut it very dramatically I think if you did things that really have good mentoring. I mean I'm president of a prison charity up in Yorkshire called Tempest Nova and last year we found jobs for 150 prisoners coming off the wings in Leeds and Wakefield and uh, Doncaster prisons. Uh, and um, we've only had about 3% go back to crime. And that's because we take a lot of trouble, mentor these guys, find them jobs, help them. So there's much, much more can be done. And from the other side of the equation, it, preventative work on identifying the youths who are likely to end up in prison. Oh, Those you bet. I mean, who can't you, you can, write you can predict yeah. which families are going to be sure. in trouble. And starting with the astonishingly high percentage of prisoners who, before they went in, were near prisoners, didn't have what might be called a normal upbringing because they were in care. And once they are not with a family, no one is saying, I love you, son, well done. The chances of them drifting off into crime is very high. So your work as a chaplain in the in Pentonville now, you finding that fulfilling from a personal point of view? I'm finding it wonderfully fulfilling. Yes. I suppose all my life I've been interested in public service, different forms. But there's no doubt that... Um, uh, the chaplaincy, which is, of course, partly very spiritual, but it's also partly very practical in terms of um, encouraging prisoners to keep their equilibrium, in terms of passing messages to families, mm. um, you know, just showing a bit of kindness and TLC. 
quite apart from praying with prisoners, of course, is what I do, or going to services. So I often come away from a day in Pentonville. I feel pretty drained, but I do feel I've done something to help somebody during this um, pretty you know, traumatic sort of a day. And that's great. And um, obviously, I feel that I'm serving the God I believe in. Uh, and I also serve the God I believe in in uh, church at weekends and things like that and in other ways. Um, but who else gets a sort of wonderfully interesting new job at 75? It's a voluntary job, of course, mm. not a paid job, but um, it certainly gives me a great sense of fulfillment and happiness and enjoyment of it yeah. just doing something. So at the age of 75, as you sit here now and you look back over your remarkable life and career, do you think that momentous time we were in the dock at the Old Bailey or even that moment when you got found out for that ticket to the Ritz, do you look back at that and think that was meant to be? That That is exactly how my life should have panned out because I am here now fulfilling what I should be doing. I'm not sure I believe quite in that degree of predestination. I mean, I think that uh, God hates sin, so let's not beat about the bush. You know, my mistakes were caused by all kinds of um, bad sins of pride and lying and so on. But having made the mess up that I did, uh, I think um, I've been astonishingly well blessed to be have an interesting life, what I hope is a worthwhile life. I hope it does something for other people. So I'm actually, uh, strange though it sounds, actually grateful for mm. having had such are, are, are a, you, a second chance. I know you can't make a direct comparison. It's impossible to do so. But would you say, having the the route that your life took, would you say you're happier that it went that way than had you gone, say, the other route and you carried on in politics, perhaps to become prime minister one day? Well, I certainly am very happy and fulfilled yes. now. And I think it's a different kind of happiness. But I have noticed, having known a lot of politicians, um, even when they have got to the top of the tree, look at Margaret Thatcher, mm. for example. Her last years were, on the whole, very unhappy years. Um, Nixon, I knew very well, read his biography. You would have to say that a great many of his post-White House years were unhappy. My post-prison years have, on the whole, been happy years. Uh, and so I'm... I'm not at all full of, uh, oh gosh, I wish I'd stayed in the House of Commons. So you've got no regrets, I no. think is another way. Of well, I've got regrets, but my, my, my mistakes. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we're about your mistakes. But, but yeah. in terms of what might have been, I don't waste any time thinking of that. Yeah. But in the scheme of things, the, the mistake you made, the lie you made, is no greater than most people make on a daily basis in their life and get away with it or it doesn't have the importance that yours did because of the position you held. Well, I guess I paid heavily for you uh, certainly did. I made, but I didn't make any complaint about that. I think you know, life, even when life has gone wrong, is what you make of it. I mean, I was hugely helped to make better things of it by friends, family, and faith. And those three things were very, very important. Um, so, Because um, we didn't touch on something very critical when... when Criminals go to prison for whatever reason. The family left behind on the in the in the outside in the real world have to get on with things, and it's, it's incredibly difficult and, for and them. It was rough for them. I mean, yeah. teenage children who were um, themselves very much in the media spotlight. Of course, uh, media fairly 
cruel in terms of chasing them at schools and that kind of thing. Um, so my family had a rough time, but uh, on the other hand, they too kept going mm. uh, and they kept on being uh, very loving to their father uh, and they came and visited me in prison. So we got through, but I wouldn't minimize uh, the pain. I think the pain was less for me than for them because they'd done nothing wrong and they were much more vulnerable than I was. Mm. But we're all still here. Well, regular listeners to the podcast will know that all of my guests will mention or tell us one or two places that are particularly personal to them. And I'm sure Jonathan, having uh, spent many years in, in London and loving London as you do, will have one or two places that you can recommend to us as well. Well, I would select a small corner of London, which runs from St. Paul's Cathedral, which I'll come back to in a second, and the Old Bailey, which is a street only about two or three hundred yards. Would have to come back to the Old Bailey, wouldn't it? (laughs) And the Old Bailey is the name of a street, but uh, it is also the location for the Central Criminal Court. Uh, And why are those so special to me for both good and bad reasons? Let me start with the Old Bailey. I've been there in what might be called a starring or notorious role three times. Uh, First, which people have forgotten about, but they sure remembered it at the time, was back, I think, in the year 1970, when I was a defendant in a very famous case called the Sunday Telegraph Secrets case. And this was a huge media and criminal trial event. The editor of the Sunday Telegraph, um, I as a young reporter and as a retired colonel who had passed me a document about the Biafra War, we were tried under Section 2 of the Official Secrets Act 1911 for effectively a leak. And this is a great issue of press freedom and all kinds of related matters, trials, headlines for weeks. Of course, we looked as though we were all going down. Mm. I mean, the law seemed to suggest that we were guilty as charged, but we had a tremendous fight. Uh, and it ended with an acquittal. And I was sort of temporarily kind of hero of press freedom to have won this great case in the Official Secrets Act. So that's, I was going to be like Act 1 of my yeah. life of the Obedi. Act 2, which we've been talking about in the podcast, was standing in the dock, having pleaded guilty to charges of perjury and to be sentenced and to hear the judge say, the sentence of the court will be, you will serve 18 months imprisonment, take him down. And mm. then down you go into the depths and you're mm. put in handcuffs and put into a prison van and driven away. And of course, that was big news, uh, television and the yeah. uh, third one, which just happened really very recently. It was extraordinary enough, the old Bailey invited me back uh, in an extraordinary role which was to um, come and be the priest, the officiating minister for the Old Bailey Carol Service. <laughs> and there was I dressed up in full uh, regalia of an ordained priest, surrounded by, um, first of all, the staff of the Old Bailey, which is about 1,000 th- people, about 200 or 300 of them turn up to the carol service who like to sing a carol. Uh, then the Old Bailey Extraordinary has the Central Criminal Court has an outstanding choir. Oh, really? Um, and so this choir was first class. And then just to add to the sort of uh, enjoyment of the occasion, uh, there was a um, uh, the Lord Mayor who dresses up in sort of wonderful robes and chains and aldermen and sheriffs, a sort of medieval panoply. And um, then finally they asked me this if... Um, I could introduce an interfaith element to this service. 
And after some thought, I brought along the Muslim chaplain from Penville Prison, who began the service before once in Royal David City on an extraordinary interfaith note. He did the azam, the call to prayer, which right. if you're in an Islamic country, I've heard it, you yeah. hear the cry yeah, from, from, from the, the minarets. From course, the minaret. yeah. And he did the call to prayer, magnificent, a wonderful voice. And, well, quite promotion, the dock of the Old Bailey to be uh, suddenly being the priest in Remarkable. charge of the carousel. So I think of the Old Bailey there. And then, of course, St. Paul's Cathedral, which is only 200 yards away, that was where I was ordained as a priest. It's where I have been to many services, including the uh, memorial and funeral service for my great uncle, the first Lord Beaverbrook. Uh, so that bit of London has um, certainly played its part in, in my life in, in a memorable way. Yeah, no, it must have great meaning for you. And to go back, as you say, to the old Bailey, yes. but in that capacity, it must be wonderful to come full circle, as it were. Yeah. It's lovely. Well, they're two um, fascinating places, which we haven't had on the podcast before in over 80 guests. So that's really great. We're building this wonderful compendium of places from all the guests. Uh, and we'll we'll add those two as well, because they're both remarkable. And they're open to the public, I think, as well. Anyone can go along yes, to, to them uh, and experience two yeah. wonderful buildings. Well, it's been a pleasure uh, for you to have you on the podcast. Uh, I'm very grateful to you for spending the time and inviting us into your lovely home here in London. Thank you ever so much. And um, keep on doing the, the, the remarkable and very valuable work that you're doing. Well, thank you for coming. I've enjoyed the talk very much. Good. Thank you. Every week here at Your London Legacy, we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown. That way, you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.